You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You'd think the president of the United States would be happy to hear that he just won the Democratic primary in New Hampshire. But according to Hamilton Jordan, Jimmy Carter was not. Not much joy in winning this year, he sulked to his most loyal aide. President Carter would prove to be prophetic. 1980 would not see much joy for him. And the fact that he had to run it all for his own party's nod was part of the problem. Yet winning in the cold snow of New Hampshire surely had to be more joyful than losing in the cold snow of New Hampshire. That was the fate that met another incumbent president, President Harry Truman, in 1952. The primary was not as sophisticated as it is now. Then the New Hampshire primary was kind of a beauty contest. In fact, Harry Truman, as the incumbent president, hadn't decided at first to enter the race. It was a Manchester lumber dealer who entered the president into the New Hampshire primary, unbeknownst to the White House. Of course, Truman later, acting on the advice of the Democratic National Committee, decided to remain in the race. Yet the president and the DNC hadn't counted on a young 48-year-old senator from Tennessee and what he would do up in New Hampshire. Six foot three, horn rim spectacle, blue eyed, with a memory for names, a slap you on the back personality, and a good natured face and welcoming drawl. Let's talk about you, he'd say. Estes Kefoffer would shake every hand in New Hampshire if he had to, according to political legend, and say silly things like the U.S. budget of $85.4 billion would stagger the imagination of a mathematical genius, let alone the mind of a simple soul like mine. He attacked the lack of healthy public morals, attacking Truman's machine politic beginnings, without mentioning him by name. Kefauver, known to friends as Keef, had a telegenic personality, as early as one could imagine what that was. He held a series of hearings, on interstate commerce and the involvement of organized crime that exposed organized crime connections and implicated a former New York mayor, William O'Dwyer. Under Kefauver's committee, O'Dwyer was forced to admit that he had underworld ties, that he had helped them as part of his political campaigns. They had helped him. This embarrassed Truman, because Truman had just made O'Dwyer ambassador to Mexico. But Truman wasn't making any changes. Asked in a press conference if he would force O'Dwyer to resign, the cantankerous 68-year-old president said simply, no. And asked if he would clean house, the president said, my house is clean. 
Truman's folksy style had worked in the 1948 re-election campaign, but under the attack of a fellow Democrat, it wasn't working so well now. Kefauver was no stranger to taking on folks in his own party. He had been elected to the Senate in 1947 after a battle with a Democratic political boss in Tennessee named Crump. Crump had made a mistake of calling Kefauver a pet coon. In response, Kefauver put on a coonskin cap and was seen all around the state wearing it. Actually, Kefauver came from a wealthy family in Tennessee, but that didn't stop him from adopting the Davy Crockett look. It became a trademark. I may be a pet coon, Kefauver said, but I am not Boss Crump's pet coon. He won that Senate race in Tennessee, and then, five years later, won against the incumbent president in the primary of New Hampshire. He won in a landslide. Time magazine of March 24, 1952, featured Kefauver with a coonskin cap in his head. A pronunciation of his name was included for the readers. Estes Kefauver. Time reported that Truman's advisors were worried about the Kefauver result. Talk in Washington began. Would the president run or would he step aside? Truman Democrats are afraid, Time reported. They're saying he's a bit of a liability. They'll never desert Harry, but they like what they heard from Kefauver. Kefauver smartly tried to make some outreaches to the incumbent president, hoping he might step aside in lieu of a younger, vigorous Democratic contender. There were so many legends with this fellow Kefauver. His upset win, his country boy goes to Yale, the Washington story, his winning a seat in Congress at 35 years of age, that he beat powerful bosses, that he took on the mob, that he was clean as a whistle, although he could drink more bourbon than anyone, that he had a pet skunk. But Truman didn't like him. He called him cow fever privately. In the end, though, Truman decided not to run for office, partially based on the New Hampshire result. But he did everything he could do to make sure that Kefauver wasn't the nominee. He tried to put Adelaide Stevenson in office after failing to get his vice president, Alban Barkley, to run a vigorous race. He even wrote letters to Stevenson urging him, the governor of Illinois then, to run. Of all the things to doom a presidential candidate, it seems, nothing is as sure as an intra-party challenge of another politician running for president from the president's party. At least a serious one. And that is one that most political scientists or political commenters might describe as where Delegates are seriously fought over, and the president in the primary contest has a good chance of losing. In the elections where it has occurred, the president has lost. John Adams might have been the first. Of course, there weren't delegates then, and there were no primaries. But there was an effort by Alexander Hamilton within the Federalist Party to elect his good friend Charles Coteworth Hickney, to have Southern delegates withhold 
their electoral votes for Adams and elect Pickney. But Adams figured out what Hamilton was doing, and he had his New England delegates withhold votes for Pickney and just vote for Adams. In the end, neither of the Federalist candidates were elected. In a day before delegates, it was kind of a mini-primary and a Federalist intra-party fight, even though John Adams didn't really consider himself a member of a party. It was actually Federalist Party that was going to re-elect him if he was going to be re-elected. In the 19th century, parties didn't nominate presidents often that they didn't want to, thus avoiding any kind of intra-party uh, contest. Franklin Pierce, John Tyler... Millard Fillmore, Chester Arthur, Andrew Johnson, and in his second race, Grover Cleveland, were not given the nomination of their parties. Thus, no big intra-party fight. Abraham Lincoln had several enemies in the Republican Party, like Chase and Fremont. But he disposed of them without a serious convention fight and a race for delegates. In 1912, something changed. There was a serious challenge to the incumbent President Taft from the former president, Theodore Roosevelt, which then morphed, after Taft won that challenge, into a general election challenge as Teddy Roosevelt formed the progressive Bull Moose Party to take on Taft. Obviously, the candidacy of Roosevelt bloodied President Taft as a Republican candidate, and Woodrow Wilson won. One of three Democratic wins in more than half a century of presidential elections. The two Republican candidates, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, had outpolled Wilson, yet Wilson became president because of the intra-party fight. And so we have 1912. We have the example of 1952, which we mentioned, where a serious challenge to the president knocked him out of the race. We have the example of 1968, where an unknown senator, Eugene McCarthy, was able to win enough delegates, although he didn't win the New Hampshire primary, to knock Lyndon Johnson out of the 1968 presidential race. Then we have the examples of 1976, in 1980. It's not a large sample size. Challenges to incumbent presidents from their party are rare. Part of the rarity comes from the fact that some presidents like Truman and Lyndon Johnson decide not to run. And you can't go to the example of 19th century presidents because in those days, if the party didn't want them anymore, they generally weren't going to get anywhere in a party convention. Then you have 1932, where Many in the Republican Party didn't want Herbert Hoover, but no one challenged him for the simple reason that no one really wanted the job. To have an example, you have to have a president who wants the job and has a base in the party. And you have to have a challenger who wants the job and has some real chance of winning some base in the party. And those events, especially in the small sample size of all presidential elections, are rare. 
But there are the twin intra-party challenges of 1976 and 1980, which I believe can be instructive in some way. In consecutive years, right after one another, incumbent presidents were challenged by members of their own party. In both cases, the presidents were hobbled by the intra-party fight. Collectively, I believe these have become a cautionary tale singed in the mind of political Washington, if not in the mind of the general public anymore. They may tell us everything about future intra-party challenges to a president or nothing. In 1976, conservative former governor, movie actor, and TV spokesperson Ronald Reagan decided to challenge President Jerry Ford. Reagan earned the support of conservatives within the Republican Party and those who felt the party needed a change. Some also who felt that Ford was doomed and that Reagan might have a better chance of winning if he was behind the Republican banner that year. President Ford had not been elected president. It was the first time ever that there was a sitting president who had not been elected either president or vice president. Ford's pardon of Nixon was a big negative, even among conservatives as just as it was for voters in general. Historians now agree that Ford probably made the correct decision, but few at the time agreed, and it looked a lot to many voters like a cover-up. Ford would appear to Congress to explain his decision. Some minds were changed, but he still looked weak as a president. Then there was the problem of inflation. When Ford picked Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president, it angered conservatives in the Republican Party. Rockefeller, although a Republican, was a big-spending liberal Republican, which worked well in New York, but not nationally. The Rockefeller decision was what really egged Reagan on. Reagan had been a contender, though, as early as 1968, when Richard Nixon had his comeback. Reagan was hoping in the 1968 convention to be the nominee. It was not to happen. Now, in 76, Reagan took his challenge all the way. It didn't matter that Ford won the early races. Reagan began attacking Ford on his policy of detente with the Soviet Union and beating the incumbent eventually in the primaries of North Carolina and South Carolina. At the convention, though, Ronald Reagan ran a poor late game when he offered Richard Schweiker, a Pennsylvania liberal, as his running mate. Now, Normally, it would be good politics to balance a ticket ideology. But Reagan had named his vice president fairly early, before he was even settled as a nominee. And by naming a liberal, he angered some of his best supporters, the conservatives. The entire Mississippi delegation went to President Ford. And Jesse Helms began looking for a different candidate to throw his support behind. Reagan was all but finished. The Reagan campaign tried a last-minute maneuver at the convention in Kansas City in 76, offering up a vote where delegates would force Ford to reveal the name of his running mate. They were hoping that Ford would anger someone with his choice, just as Reagan had, and even the score. But it didn't happen. Ford won that challenge, and narrowly, he won the nomination. Ford won the contest, but was damaged by the result. 
Among the many other problems that might have hampered Ford in image-wise, Ford was forced to choose a conservative as his running mate. You look at the 1976 convention in Kansas City, and that's where really conservatives completed their takeover of the party. Because even though the more moderate campaign had won the primary, it was only with the blessing of some of the conservatives, particularly that Mississippi delegation switching to Ford that allowed him to beat Reagan. In response, and in thanks, Ford chose Bob Dole of Kansas as his running mate to please conservatives. It was a good choice for within the party, but a bad choice for the general election. Dole's debate performance was looked at as a negative in a very close race. The smiling Dole of later, the smiling Dole we may know now, was not seen in 1976. He looked angry. In a very close race, it was one of many factors. In addition, Ford always felt that Reagan had helped to beat him by running such a strong primary and tarnishing his image. Ford came astonishingly close to winning in 1976 as the general election loomed. Reagan was asked to help Ford, particularly in the South where Carter was showing strength. He wanted Reagan to campaign in South Carolina and Mississippi. But the only appearance that the Ford campaign could negotiate with Reagan was a single one, and Ford said that Reagan seemed lukewarm at that event. Any other attempts that were made Reagan begged off, saying that he had prior engagements. Prior engagements in response to the President of the United States. But because of the lack of support from Reagan and many other factors, Carter became President, an unexpected choice who no one in the party knew, a one-term Georgia governor. His involvement in the presidential race four years before, 1972, was a small attempt to try to stop McGovern by nominating a more conservative candidate at the convention in Miami Beach. And when that failed, Jimmy Carter put his name up as a potential vice presidential running mate for McGovern and got a few votes. No one knew who he was, yet he ended up winning the nomination of the same party four years later. And everyone from Southern Democrats to big city bosses and union leaders united to put President Jimmy in the White House. Once there, though, there were disappointments. Congress and the Georgian didn't see eye to eye. Little significant legislation was passed. Edward Kennedy, liberal lion, and the biggest name in Democratic politics, challenged the president. Walter Mondale, Carter's vice president and very involved with the Kennedy primary that would come, recounted that the most liberal senator had helped to elect the most conservative president. Indeed, Kennedy was out to deal a severe blow, not just a glancing pass. When he lost Iowa, there was talk that he would drop out. President Carter beat Kennedy two to one. When Kennedy lost New Hampshire, a neighboring state to Massachusetts, there was again talk that he would have to pull out. Hamilton Jordan, writing in his memoirs, was certain that when Kennedy announced a big television speech that he was going to leave the race and stop this foolish run that was hurting his own party. But instead of making an announcement to resign from the race, he gave a speech at Georgetown 
calling for a new America, and that Democrats should talk the truth to people. There was a clear blow at Carter, who was a more moderate president than he wanted to see. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Carter won significant primaries in the South, in Illinois, in Wisconsin. At each occasion that Carter won a primary, they hoped Kennedy would rejoin the party and endorse the president. He did not. It became clear that despite losing many primaries, even to the point where Kennedy would have to earn 60% of primary delegates to win all the remaining prime delegates, Kennedy never budged. Then there were wins in New York, in Connecticut, in Pennsylvania, in California. This confirmed Kennedy's feeling. It was clear that Ted Kennedy thought Carter was weak and that the early primary wins were support for the presidency, but the Carter camp would bubble out. When President Carter won Ohio and thus took Kennedy out of a mathematical possibility to win, there were simply not enough delegates to win the nomination. They figured then, at least then, Kennedy would call to concede. But he didn't. Kennedy took his challenge all the way to the convention that year in New York. Lacking delegates, he tried to get a procedure where the delegates, regardless of who they were pledged for coming to New York, could vote for anyone they wanted once they got there to unlock the delegates. Kennedy's campaign called it an open convention. Jody Powell, Carter's spokesperson, called it subverting the voters. He lost the vote 
and then Kennedy lost the nomination. Ostentatiously, as President Carter would say in his diary, he didn't shake my extended hand. Indeed, he didn't, and the entire television audience and all the commentators noticed that. It generated many more headlines than the fact that Carter had won the nomination. For an incumbent president, it seemed to be a heck of a fight to get his own party's nomination. Just as Carter didn't get much joy out of winning the New Hampshire primary, he didn't get much joy out of winning the party's nomination. Some commentators called the president heavy-handed, a dictator in winning. Some called him an incompetent in having the challenge go this far. As Carter wrote in his diary, I looked like a combination of Adolf Hitler and Goofy. The press couldn't get right which way they wanted to attack me. The treatment was an indication of how bad things were for an incumbent dealing with gas price crisis, a recession, a hostage crisis that made the country look weak. Kennedy looked at how Reagan had savaged an incumbent president who was weakened by the Watergate and the Nixon pardon. And he knew the Democrats weren't happy with Carter. He knew that his family had a name, especially a name in Democratic politics. And he saw at every turn that he didn't need to give up. There was a little love lost between President Carter and Speaker Tip O'Neill. But one thing the Speaker was firm on, he did not like the challenge from Senator Ted Kennedy to the incumbent president, even though O'Neill was very friendly with the Kennedy family and with Ted himself. Forget the polls, he told Ted directly. You can't beat an incumbent president. He's got $100 billion to distribute to local governments, and he can send money wherever he wants. Kennedy ignored the advice from O'Neill, and O'Neill stayed neutral in that primary. The Carter camp felt good about beating Kennedy, but the victory didn't give the president enhanced stature. In fact, it hurt. Hamilton Jordan wrote a memo to President Carter right after the Kennedy challenge that outlined the reasons why he felt Kennedy would hurt them in the general election against Ronald Reagan. A. The challenge placed the president in a political posture for an extended period of time. He looked like a politician and not the leader of the free world. B. Support for Carter as a likable guy, a compassionate guy, eroded. C. The Kennedy contest alienated big groups in the Democratic Party, labor unions, for instance. D. Third party was emboldened by the Kennedy challenge, and that third party was John Anderson running as an independent even though he had been a liberal Republican. Liberals who had supported Kennedy were flocking to Anderson now in the general election. E, Ham Jordan wrote, state parties, particularly California, New York, and Pennsylvania, which had voted for Kennedy, have been alienated. They went for Kennedy, and now they had to switch gears and go for the guy they didn't vote for. All of these factors, even after the primary election. Kennedy made it difficult. As part of a patch-up deal, Kennedy agreed to campaign for Carter if the president would do a fundraiser to help pay for the Kennedy campaign debts. Hamilton Jordan tells about how 
He couldn't sell any tickets to this event. There was no love lost between Carter and Kennedy at this point, and Carter's staff wasn't about to buy tickets to a Kennedy fundraiser. So he went around the White House and asked the staff to buy. Jack English, a Kennedy staffer who had joined the Carter 1980 campaign to help as part of the patch-up deal, said that his boss, Kennedy, wasn't happy. The Carter staffers weren't selling enough tickets. Hamilton Jordan went to the bank and got a loan for $1,000. He then went around the White House showing it to staff members. And finally, seeing this enormous gesture, staff members chipped in and tickets were sold. At the fundraiser, Ted Kennedy heard what Ham Jordan had done and walked over and made a point to thank him. Jordan, though, wasn't feeling very gracious. As he wrote in his memoirs, I deeply resented Kennedy with all his millions coercing us to pay off his campaign debt. President Obama, in 2008, would face similar demands from Hillary Clinton. And it's always a question that will... will come up again and again between challengers and party nominees. The party nominee wants the support of the challenger. The challenger has campaign bills to pay and now is not in office where they can curry any favor. If the party nominee helps the challenger, will they be encouraging other challengers in the future who know they can run a campaign because they'll get help for paying the debts once they once they're defeated by an opponent interesting little situation written in august 1980 hamilton jordan's memo to carter accurately described the reasons that kennedy would hurt carter in his reelection that year of course carter also had real problems the hostage crisis gas prices so is a challenger a symptom or a cause. Hmm. Let's look at 1916, 1948, and 2004. These are close re-elects where presidents just barely won. And in all these cases, Wilson, Truman, George W. Bush, they had no intra-party opponent to fend off. They could spend all their money and their time working on their own re-elections and getting their base out to vote. For President Barack Obama, an intra-party challenge would have been unthinkable in 2009 with rocketing approval ratings and in the wake of replacing President Bush, who had low approval ratings. Now, two years in, it's still unlikely. But it's possible to say things may have shifted a bit to where we can at least talk about it. And so here I am talking about it with you this early. And I think we can for three reasons. One, I believe the cautionary tale, the twin examples of 76 and 80, where even weak presidents destroyed strong challengers or strong warning signs against any challenge intra-party to a sitting president. They're fading a bit as time passes. These examples probably helped George Bush Sr., who faced the challenge from Pat Buchanan but not a serious one that got a lot of delegates or got a lot of support within the broader party. Clinton, who faced no serious inter-party challenger. George W. Bush, who faced no serious inter-party challenger. The cautionary tale may have helped these presidents, but 30 years has gone by, and someone may try again. Two, if unemployment persists 
an argument for a new approach could be made within the Democratic Party and might get some traction. And three, Obama's recent tax deal means that the left is grumbling. With a Republican Congress coming in, Obama may be able to do little for the left, very little for his base at the time he needs to do it most during a primary challenge. Those are three factors that I think come into play when we look at intra-party challenges now. But there's another. Someone must actually make the challenge. We can't just talk about an intra-party challenge academically. Someone has to actually pick up, raise money, build support, and make a challenge against the sitting president. If the twin examples of 78 and 80 are cautionary tale, we can remember that in both cases, these vigorous primary challenges were fought by the strongest in the party. Ted Kennedy was the name in Democratic politics, obviously the family name. The Kennedys hadn't really lost an election. I mean, it wasn't clear what was going to happen in 68 with Robert Kennedy. But the Kennedys hadn't lost an election. And in Democratic circles, they were the name. Kennedy represented a strong base within the party, the liberals, and there was disappointment there. That fueled the Kennedy campaign. In 1976, Ronald Reagan was a charismatic person. But most importantly, he led a huge base in the Republican Party, a base that wanted to be felt and that wasn't feeling a lot of love from the current administration. Who will challenge now? In making a move that both Woodrow Wilson and Abraham Lincoln made, the old team of rivals move, in making the party opponent a member of the administration, President Obama did himself some good. Wilson made William Jennings Bryan his Secretary of State. Abraham Lincoln made William Seward his Secretary of State. Bryan represented a more progressive element of the Western Democratic Party around the time of the turn of century in the teens. Wilson, as an Easterner, was a progressive but a more conservative progressive than Bryan. Seward was a rival moderate Republican from the same ideological school as Lincoln, but from a different part of the country. Neither Bryan nor Seward could attack their presidents once they took the oath of office for their cabinet positions because they were part of the administration. If they tried a challenge, it would be too easy for them to be attacked. Brian wished to, hoped that someone else might challenge Wilson. Seward, as it turned out, actually developed a respect for President Lincoln and had no intention of challenging him or allowing another to challenge him. In the same regard, with a blue dog health care bill, a tax deal with Republicans, lingering unemployment, the ingredients of a liberal challenge might be there if Hillary Clinton was waiting on the sidelines. Given the 12-month primary and the split in the party that they fought between 2007 and 2008, an instant anti-Obama base would be there. But as a member of government, it's impossible, in my view, for Hillary to challenge now, even if she wished to. One of the largest areas of administration policy, foreign policy, 
is under her control. And I doubt that she wishes to. I want to be clear about the twin examples of 78 and 80. I don't think they are gone. I don't think they've faded. But they're just fading a bit. And they could be in the background. They would still weigh heavily on the minds of some, especially those who enjoy the insider baseball of politics. These people would know from 76 and 80, challenge the president, you lose, and more importantly, you sink the party. So who might challenge now if it won't be Hillary Clinton, Russ Feingold, Dennis Kucinich, Howard Dean? They're all possibilities. In the end, though, they did support President Obama's biggest domestic achievement, the health care reform. They're not heavyweights, and I think each of them would be easily waved off. None would have the access to the second power base in the Democratic Party of 2010 right now, and that's the Clintons. So again, an intraparty challenge is a little more relevant to discuss right now in the wake of a tax deal with Republicans that's not popular in the Democratic Party but it's still far from realistic right now. I want to thank you for listening. The website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Wish you a happy holiday and a happy new year. The archive's available on the website, $14.99. You get many, many, many episodes of things we've discussed in the past, uh, going all the way back to 2006. Facebook site where you can discuss issues with other listeners. And, as I always say, if you like the program, tell someone about it preferably the iTunes comment page. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.